0: This is Corrections Community, a space where we explore topics related to the correction side of the criminal justice system with people who want to make a difference. This podcast is about bringing people together to share their experience and knowledge so we can become better at what we do. If you have any questions or have a subject you'd like discussed, you can write us at correctionscommunitypodcast at gmail or just look us up on the web at correctionscommunity.com. I'm really looking forward to trying a new approach to learning from others And I hope you join us by subscribing and reviewing the show. I'm Chris Chandler, and this is Corrections Community. Dr. Andrew Shuchaki is the medical director of Clackamas County here in Oregon, and he's someone who's worked extensively with corrections to improve access to medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, for those who are justice-involved. Dr. Suchaki helps us better understand some of the science behind MAT, but he also shares some personal observations from throughout his career that have led him to become extremely passionate about this issue. In this episode, I'm also able to share how much my own perspective has changed on this subject over time, and this ended up being a really interesting conversation about where the corrections and medical fields intersect. This is Corrections Community Podcast with Dr. Andrew Suchaki. So, Marcus, we're here. We have Dr. Andrew Shuchaki, um, and he is the medical director for Clackamas County here in Oregon. And we're really excited to have him on today. He's going to talk to us primarily, well, it's going to be a wide ranging conversation, but primarily, we're here to talk about uh, medication assisted treatment and the kind of intersection between our fields, the medical field and the corrections field. But, uh, Dr. Shuchaki, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your
1: experience? Yeah. Chris and Marcus, thanks so much for the invitation to join you both. Um, this is a great uh, a great podcast series you guys have been telling me about, and I'm excited you're doing it. Um, so my background. So I actually am a physician. I uh, did my medical school at Ohio State. Um, and... Uh, I, by the way, I didn't realize how much everyone hated Ohio State football fans. So, uh, <laughs> so I ended up in Maryland for a little bit and was like, ooh, and then out here, oh, it was terrible. So um, so yeah, I, I promise uh, I just went there for med school, so I, I don't, I'm not a zealot. <laughs> I'm just a fan. You know
0: uh, how I can tell is you didn't say the Ohio State University.
1: That's the that difference. Actually, guys, it's funny. So when people say, you know, hey, I heard you went to med school at Ohio State, and I, I sometimes will say to them, there's no med school at Ohio State. There's a med school at The Ohio State University. Oh, wow. And that's a little triggering. Wow. So, you know, so I tended to back that off yeah. a little bit. But yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I, I also told people too, I decided to go there for med school because the football team was so good. So, you know, <laughs> 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 so anyway, so yeah, so after that, I did residency in Cincinnati. Um, and the entire time in med school and residency, I was running into. Um, questions I didn't have answers to, um, addiction, chronic pain, opiates. I mean, this was in the early to mid-aughts, and that was when pain was the fifth vital sign, when we were really trying to be aggressive with pain control and pain management. Um, and we were t- looking at it from a very, very allopathic, and when I say allopathic, I mean, um, you know, MD, uh, Western medicine, very mm-hmm. allopathic approach. Um, and we were also, frankly, looking at it as something we could treat like diabetes, where, hey, you know, you can let your diet go a little bit. We'll just turn up your insulin a little and we'll offset that and so we were Mm. kind of thinking that maybe that's how we treat chronic pain and it seemed very it didn't sit right with me and um i did an addictions rotation in med school and and also was looking at how we were doing addictions treatment didn't sit right with me either but i couldn't put a finger on it i couldn't quite understand exactly why i was having this like internal struggle and a lot of people in training and the aughts were doing this because we weren't um addictions was was very siloed um you didn't have necessarily the acceptance of medication and addictions as much as we do now. And also, too, with pain, we were very at a very, very different approach than we do now. So I finished my residency, and I worked in Louisville uh, in homeless healthcare for a year. And I actually ended up taking care of a lot of patients in addictions programs, because um, when you're, in a, you're, you're technically ho- houseless, um, back then we used the word homeless, um, when you're in addictions treatment programs, typically, at least in Louisville we were. And so I learned a lot. And by the way, it's Louisville, but I say Louisville because I'm not from Kentucky. Um, but it's, it's probably more Louisville. Um,
0: I was going to question that, but no, you
1: know, we'll, we'll let that slide. We we'll got it slide, no, guys. I'm trying to anticipate your good questions, and that's <laughs> one of them for sure. I was there when Patino was at his like kind of his most corrupt peak too. So it was kind oh, of oh wow, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, Yeah. anyway, so when I was there, and I also was covering for some safety net clinics as well when I was there, and was running into, and this is very much when the opiate crisis was really starting to show up, and this was in Mm -hmm. a very underserved, uh, poor part of of, of the city, Um, and I was getting, you know, escorted to my car by the police, I was having patients spit on me, because I was asking questions about, you know, hey, the fentanyl you're on for your uh, low back pain that I don't have a good reason for you having... Doesn't seem to be as effective as one would think. You would think that being on that much fentanyl would mean that you are relatively pain-free, but I was seeing patients that were in debilitating pain. They become, you know, unable to work, um, and they, you know, if they didn't get their medicines, they would, I mean, they they would go into a very limbic part of their brain. Mm. And so, as we talk in this podcast, I'm going to use the word limbic a lot. And so, when you think about the limbic part of the brain. That's your core function. So that's when that's we call that like the lizard brain, mm-hmm. um, and so that's that's that stuff you're thinking about two minutes to two hours from now. Your your most your most basic needs for survival. So that that's part of our system will sometimes run us, but a lot of times we want to live in our prefrontal cortex. So that's our thinking, planning, strategic part of our brain. So that's mm-hmm. that's beyond those. It's maybe two days, two weeks, two months, two years, and it's the ability for us to to make the right to make a more smart decision for us in the long-term versus the short-term. And that's going to be something where I want to talk about because when we have patients that are on opioids, opiates or other substances, um, a lot of times that puts them when they're on this into more of a limbic part of their, uh, they live more limbically. Yes, And you will start to see that. And what we will do though, when we observe a, a, a patient or client or Um, you know, or or, or a colleague that's in that world, we're going to judge them using our prefrontal cortex, but we're seeing someone in their limbic, in their limbic Mm -hmm. phase. And so it's, 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 I mean, the joke I will often tell people, it's, you know, it's like one of you is on marijuana and one of you is drinking, you know, and your two experiences, someone's amped up, someone's mellowed out, right? And so it's, it's, you know, oil and water, right? Those two don't necessarily mix. So if we look, if we talk to someone who's in their limbic brain using our prefrontal cortex and you thinking those rules apply, they just don't.
2: I've legitimately never thought of it that way before. That's, that's amazing.
1: Thanks, Marcus. Honestly, I didn't either. This is my evolution, right? I came with the same mm-hmm. stigma everyone else has. It's not, and this is sort of when we say the phrase ignorance, you know, we talk about ignorance is expensive, ignorance is bliss. We say ignorance like it's a bad thing. No, in my mind, ignorance is just a lack of understanding that's mm-hmm. non judgmental. Mm-hmm. So for me, like it's really important when I talk to people about this is to say whatever views you have, it's okay because we. Evolve as a society. We change what we 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 evolve what we know based on new information, and so in the eighties, a lot of us came up. You know, a lot of these views that we had were what we thought would worked, and so you know for a while, what we had in our brains in society was "quote unquote" correct. So it evolves. So I, I don't have a huge issue at all. I have no issue with people, any views they have when they bring to the table. I'm like, great, let's talk about those views because the, mm. you know, rooted in those views, you know, no one wants to think ill of others. We just think that we're applying what we know, and so the more information we can give people, the more we can evolve that.
0: Uh, you know, doctor, when you, when you were saying in the beginning, uh, you, you started to kind of think critically about some of the kind of traditional interventions, Uh, you know, I think you were talking not just about kind of the medical field as far as prescribing practices uh, in response to pain, but also in addictions treatment, that things weren't sitting well, I think maybe was the term that you Mm -hmm. used. And so was that, that kind of realization or that connection that you made then that, you know, the kind of more traditional or conventional interventions that we were using was aimed at the prefrontal cortex, if you will? And and really not addressing that limbic kind of that that state that 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 people who are struggling with opiate addiction are in. So Chris, I really want to thank you for looking at it that way because I haven't thought about it that way
1: before, and I think you're exactly right. What we're seeing is a dopamine imbalance, and when we talk about a dopamine imbalance, we're talking about a neurotransmitter in the brain that um when you're on an illicit or controlled substance the levels of that it affects those levels and um the dopamine rush and so a dopamine rush would be maybe when you score a goal goal on a soccer game when you mm-hmm. buy something when you take a drink of alcohol right. when you you know when your child is born you get all anything big that makes you feel great that's dopamine now there's a certain percent of us that are born are very very prone to for dopamine to dopamine levels and will drive us to do things that may not be rational, mm. um, and and that can be any society. I will tell people, you know, you could be you could take you know, hundred people in America, hundred people in Saudi Arabia, and hundred people in Kenya. We're all going to have that same genetic predisposition, independent of the country we live in. Mm-hmm. So, when that's for me, the first most important thing when we think about people that have that struggle with addiction. You're born that way. And we talked about it, you know, me not having judgment on anybody who I encounter that has an opinion about addictions that are maybe different than mine. I don't have judgment there. Just like when I see someone or have a patient that's struggling with addictions, I know that there could be that they could be part of that genetic component to them. Now, of course, just because you have a genetic predisposition does not mean that you're going to be powerless around a substance. So then we think about okay well what else could make you more prone to addiction or struggle with addiction trauma abuse neglect and let's remember that what trauma is it's either too, it's you know an act of violence or an act of violation or being ignored we cannot forget that neglect is almost as damaging as physical or emotional trauma. Neglect is just as much. So if you have someone and that's why we see this in families a lot. Um, yeah, you could have a genetic predisposition, but if your parent struggled with addiction or was in and out of corrections and you know, again, we we just decriminalized drugs in this to small parts of mm-hmm. small amounts of drugs in this state. Well, if we can keep parents out of jail and more engaged in treatment, that means their children have a more present parent or at least a parent that's around and maybe we can break that cycle. And of course we're, we're going down a rabbit hole here that we can go down at some point later. You no, know,
0: this is great. I mean, there's so many intersections here and I, I really appreciate you um kind of speaking um, to trauma and adverse childhood experiences and also just kind of um, expanding the definition of trauma and, and exactly what you said um, and, and looking at it as, as, as neglect or even the absence of physical or sexual abuse um and, and, and really just kind of, um, I, I, I guess from a practical standpoint, understanding the importance of becoming aware of that with the justice-involved people that we work with, um, and uh, some of the um, you know some of the experiences, the different forms of trauma that our clients um, uh, have experienced throughout their life, and continue to, and and some uh, and the position that that puts them in, or the effect I should say that that has on them, physiologically speaking. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I, I also think, too, that it doesn't excuse the behavior, right? Mm. So I think that uh, the, the counterargument sometimes is, oh, you're, you're just giving someone a quote unquote pass. I'm saying, no, we still need to hold people accountable, but we also need to realize that we've created an environment and a structure that they can't succeed in. And so when I was sitting back as a med student looking at you know, uh, doing an inpatient addictions rotation, I was saying, wait a minute, so I'm seeing people. That have had terrible lives that may have significant or serious and pervasive mental illness, that have that are shells of themselves going through recovery when we know there's a dopamine imbalance. They leave the the, the program and they bounce right back. And what's the definition of madness or insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting yeah. the same result, right? So I was seeing this, this, this revolving door. And I was like, does anyone else see this? Isn't there a better way? Now, granted, we had methadone back then, of course. This is only, this was, you know, 2004. I mean, we clearly had addictions treatment stuff. But mm-hmm. that was stigmatized
0: significantly in oh, 12-step yeah. programs. By everyone. By everyone. Uh, You know, by the recovery community, treatment programs, uh, certainly corrections in the criminal justice system. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. I mean, and you have most most, most methadone clinics. You've got to be there at 5 in the morning. You're waiting outside, usually in a a not-a-safe part of town. I mean, I had a patient. I have a patient who she lost both parts of her legs waiting in line in the cold because she's a serious diabetic for her methadone. We had her doing this for 5 or 10 years. I got her on Suboxone, buprenorphine. And guess what? She stopped getting her her limbs amputated. Her blood sugar got better control. She had her life back because we we thought about it. We said, wait a minute, this person's low risk for diversion. They've been stable and steady on methadone for a decade. Why in the world are we forcing them to go every day? It's like wearing a scarlet letter. And so we still have this. Now, it's gotten way better. But this was the sort of the stuff that I was seeing that was getting me so just angry and frustrated Mm. Because we're really casting judgment. We talk about structural racism. This is more of a structural judgment that we've created for people with addictions. And I think if you Mm -hmm. just think about what we talked about, it's a genetic predisposition, parenting that was suboptimal, witnessing trauma, a death of a relative. You can't control for that. So we create a system in our our, our nation where where things that people have no, no fault of their own happen to them. Mm-hmm. And now we basically put a big old scarlet letter on them, throw them in jail when you know for 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 terrible things, you know, petty crime for whatever or mm-hmm. possession or mild distribution, and it's we're saying, well, whoa, well, let's let's go upstream here, because the more we continue to do what we do now, it's that definition of insanity that we're coming back to. Yeah,
0: and I can see how an individual like that coming into the system that is based on, we'll just say. I'm going to use air quotes so no one can see kind of fair and equal treatment, right? We're going to treat everyone the same, and we're going to use uh, you know a system that's kind of designed around. I'll just say car- sticks and carrots, right? That that that, that uh, rational people, that people in that kind of you know in that prefrontal cor- cortex uh, part of their brain can understand. If I do this, there's going to be a consequence, and if I do this, there'll there'll be there'll be a benefit, right? Um, and and I can see as you paint this picture how how obvious the the, the problem the cycle uh, becomes uh, that people enter the system and they cannot get out and all the barriers that that, that are created by you know having a criminal record uh, being on supervision uh, following uh, or having to abide by by conditions um, and so this is a, a you know this conversation where I I hadn't even thought that we would kind of get to some of these points, but I'm I'm so glad that we are. Uh, I think all of this is really really important. And so, doctor, you you mentioned in there you used uh, the two terms uh, suboxin and buprenorphine. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about maybe the various forms of of MAT? and and again kind of uh, sometimes i i don't even realize i'm i'm talking about the same substance and i'm using maybe again the chemical name versus the the brand name if you will so can you tell us a bit about the different forms and and maybe the different types of them
1: yeah chris i'm happy to and and, and for those of us who, that are listening this is this, we've we've sort of really talked about some of the really the foundational the 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 neurochemistry the the neurophysiology some you know Really foundational issues, and we're we're sort of going from here now to a quite a downstream solution. So we're gonna. I, I've I, just to road map this out to everyone on the, on in the podcast. We're gonna probably come back to some of these topics. That yeah, I'd li- but absolutely. I but I, I want to. I do want to talk a little bit about. So let's talk about terms because I think the glossary would be helpful. So so mm-hmm. we say MAT. So what does MAT mean? Well, it's medications for addiction treatment. Um, now it used to be medication assisted treatment. We're trying to evolve that. Um, to medications for addiction treatment, um, it, it's still the same acronym. I was one of the people really pushing as we, were, as a, as a practice community, was we were changing what the acronym stood for to not change the acronym. So when we say MAT, <laughs> we know what MAT means. Yeah. Now, um, when we think about MAT, so there's two components to um, entering, a, you know, a, 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 some aspect of recovery from being dependent on a controlled or illicit substance. So one of those is medication, and one of those is behavioral, and as 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 we think back to about ten minutes ago, my one of my many rants, which probably will have more rants before we're done, um, was was how how we really focused on behavioral and sort of neglected the, the neurochemistry. And so, what the the medication aspect of of the treatment is is helping correct the chemical imbalance. And so, when we correct a chemical imbalance, or correct the the withdrawal, or or you know whatever term you want to use we let's go back to our limbic brain you're able to leave that 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 limbic brain and go into live more in the prefrontal cortex because one of the core things we think about the core elements that you know we want to we, to, to to live you know love shelter food things like that well one could argue when you're dependent upon an illicit substance that's more important than housing it's definitely more important than food um, cause we see it, we see people struggling with, 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 with housing. Um, you know, well, what, what, you know, if they're, if they're using and they're, they're neglecting other core things that the limbic brain is supposed to be looking out for, that's pretty damn powerful. And so we think about, you know, if we can correct that, that imbalance where the brain is seeking the dopamine, um, balance, um. Then all of a sudden, we can get someone into a place where talking about behavioral health and talking about, hey, let's address Mm -hmm. some of that trauma. Let's talk about, you know, things that have happened to you in the past. Or let's talk about your, your untreated bipolar disorder or maybe the fact that sometimes you hear or see things that other people don't see. I mean, these are things that are also dopamine-dependent, but they all feed together. When you think for me, when I think about the spectrum of mental health disorders, we see depression, anxiety, um, mood disorders that could be bipolar, all the way to schizophrenia. Those are all, a lot of those are, some of those are serotonin-related and norepinephrine-related, but a lot of those are dopamine-related. And they all blur together. They all, but you can have depression with psychotic features. Um, You know, you can, uh, there's a reason why we have all these, these terms that are fairly large catchment areas because they're all dopamine related. So when you look at where addiction is on there, I mean, that's, it's the same pathway. So it's going to be involved and it's going to blur and blend with those. And so that's why a lot of times you see it again, be a familial link because you've got, you know, if you see someone who is dependent on opiates or is addicted to, you know, chemically dependent upon an illicit substance, if you look into their family tree and family history, I would be willing to bet you you know good money that the family history is, 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 is lightened up like a Christmas tree. Because when we think about when you look at your patients with heart disease, there's a good chance that it runs in the family too. Same thing. Almost yeah. more strongly in, in this in this population. So I went down a rabbit hole. We're going to come right back. <laughs> Medications. Okay. So, I, so here's our glossary. We talk about Suboxone. Suboxone is buprenorphine. So Suboxone's the trade name. I use like when I do presentations, I typically say buprenorphine because we're supposed to use the the non-commercial name. So buprenorphine is the active ingredient in Suboxone. So some of you may have heard of Subutex, uh, Subusal, or. There's a dissolvable form. There's a there's a patch. Um, there's a film. They all have different names, but buprenorphine is the active ingredient. Now, so the next question is: Is so what? A, what wait a minute. So you just said methadone and you said buprenorphine. So people could be on either, and yes, they could be on either. We favor buprenorphine. It's safer. Um, But both of those are relatives of our friend morphine, oxycodone, fentanyl. They're all in the opiate family. Um, They're all a little different. So when we think about opiate effects, things like euphoria, um, buprenorphine does not have the euphoria and some of the other side effects um, that some opiates would have. It also allows you to be a little bit more clear thinking. So a lot of patients of mine who end up on buprenorphine will tell me, Doc, hey, I can think a little better now. I'm more clear. I'm less foggy. So buprenorphine is better in that respect. The other thing, though, that the most probably the most important feature of buprenorphine is that it doesn't stop your ability to breathe. So when we see on in commercial, you know, in TV or movies, or um, for those of us in the corrections community, when you see uh, a justice involved individual out, either passed away or are temporarily dead before you revive them they just stop breathing that's all they did and so when we think about again opiate overdose all that means usually and of course many of other substances involved it's messy sure they just stop breathing because opiates they knock down your respiratory drive and so you need to breathe between 12 and 20 times a minute you're gonna go down to two and four times a minute, and then you're gonna stop breathing. So buprenorphine does not have that. It will, it will suppress it a little bit, but it stops. It doesn't, it has a ceiling effect and it's pretty safe. So my mm. analogy with, with when, I, when I do teaching or, or talks or with my patients is that morphine, fentanyl, things like that, those are scissors. You, you put scissors on your finger, you're gonna cut your finger. Buprenorphine is safety scissors. It'll cut paper. It could hurt a little bit when you cut your finger because it pinches your skin, but it won't break the skin, mm-hmm. so that's the way I look at buprenorphine. And so when we think about, well, what if you get buprenorphine on the street? Well, what if you divert your buprenorphine? Well, if someone sells their buprenorphine, which we don't want, because we all understand, and I don't need to tell anybody on this podcast what the, you know what happens when you enter the underworld or like the, the gray world of of, of 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 drug you know selling and distribution. Mm-hmm. Clearly, we don't want our, our 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 population to be doing that. However, If someone sells some of their buprenorphine and it's then bought by someone on the street, they're doing that so they don't have to inject heroin. That's a a public health thing. Because when you inject heroin, you could get hepatitis C. You could get HIV. Mm -hmm. You could die. And if you're injecting heroin and you have two kids, let's go back to that ACEs thing we just talked about, right? Mm -hmm. And why are you injecting heroin? Well, you're living in your limbic brain, right? So it's all kind of feeding back. Anyway, so if you buy buprenorphine on the street so you don't have to use heroin... Thank you for doing that. I wanna to say to someone who, you know, if anyone hears us now that's struggling with addiction, that's a good thing. Not, mm-hmm. We don't want you to buy things on the black market, but the fact that you're making a decision to do a safer behavior is the start to having you be even more safe. And when we think about some of the effects of, of injecting drugs, we see it in the hospital too, because you could get a Hep C, you could get HIV, sure, but you could also get this thing called endocarditis, which is where you have an infection on your, on a valve of the heart. And that is, it's terrible for the patient, it's also extremely expensive to society. And I think this is a view that it doesn't matter your, what your view is on politics. If you're a liberal or you're a conservative, I can make an argument to either of you. From a mm. conservative standpoint, hey, you wanna save money? You know what's mm-hmm. really expensive? Treating bacterial endocarditis in the ICU. Mm. If you look at how much it costs to treat that versus put someone on buprenorphine and have them go to a group or counseling, I, I can't even tell you the difference in price for, for lifetime or how much does it cost to put someone in jail versus put them on buprenorphine and maybe give them a, a, fund a case manager with her, with her community corrections that helps them get their life together. It isn't even close. In my mind, I think the conservatives should be pushing this even more because it's, it's, Frankly, from a dollars and forget human rights. From a dollars and cents standpoint, this just makes sense. And every other, most other developed countries in this world have this figured out way more than we do. So Oregon has made the first steps to be where we're making smart decisions from a financial and human rights perspective, which is nice to see. And we just so, went down an area we didn't need to, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's
2: okay. I, I appreciate that. I, I have a question then. So. Um, You know, kind of challenging back a little bit um, about what you're saying, and and you know, for uh, there's a lot of people out there that say, oh well, as a as a doctor, you're going to see things from a medical lens because if you your only tool you have is a hammer, all you're going to see is a nail, right? Um, And you know, there's there's a lot of people out there that that may say, well, the medical field, the the doctors, the prescribing doctors, helped to start the opioid crisis, and now we're in this place where you're saying the next thing that we're going to do to solve this or to, to move forward is more prescriptions. So how, how will you address that? Ah, that's a great question.
1: So, so we never got back to my biography because I took us down a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> So after I was in Kentucky, um, I went, um, I worked a little bit more in Ohio. And then I ended up doing a, 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 for me, it was a fellowship. For some people, it's a residency in public health and prevention. So that was at, um, that was at Hopkins in Baltimore. And I did, I had the opportunity to do a big uh, case study for their insurance company about um, opiates, back pain, and function. And the data was overwhelming that opiates weren't helping. And a lot of the things that we were doing for chronic pain weren't helping. And so I mentioned before, pain was the fifth vital sign. We are aggressive with treating pain. Well, as we remember in 2011, um, people were getting injected with steroids into their back and they were dying of meningitis because we had tainted steroids. Well, why were we doing that? Well, we were doing that because we took a traditional medical model approach to people that were struggling with chronic pain and there's still a role, but we're we're evolving. And so we call it the practice of medicine for a reason because we don't quite know what we're doing we do <laughs> but we have to change and that's why I like primary care because if if there's new evidence that's good that says what you were doing yesterday wasn't good and we need to shift it to today in medicine where it, it's sort of required that we don't have too much of an ego we have to change our practice style and I think that that when we the question you asked about you know where why are we replacing you know is, why is this always still involving medicine it's like well you know, it, it's, it's, it's an evolving science. And um, we think that what we're doing now is safer, but it's still through the medical model. Now, when we think about the opiate crisis, that's such a long topic, um, such a big topic. But we think about there's two populations in my mind. There's the opiate naive. And so, again, naive is a bad word, but in this in phrase, it's a good one. It's people who haven't taken opiates for much at all. Maybe a couple of Vicodins for a, a tooth for a really bad tooth pull um, or a couple oxycodone postoperatively. But are relatively opiate naive. That's one population. The other population is people who have been on long-term opiates for a very long time. And those two are distinct, unique populations that need a very different approach to both. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's probably another topic for another podcast. But it there is, we we really need to like think about those populations a little separately. Um, and for our population that's opiate naive. What we're what we know now, we know that my my goal is to keep about eighty percent of that population to eighty five percent of that population off of opiates, but there are going to be patients who opiates may be appropriate, and we think about who would started who would be started on opiates now. We think about, you know, is it require is it is it is it, is it something that's preventing them from doing their job? Um, is it something that um, maybe the other medications we'd want to use are too dangerous for them, and opiates are actually a little safer? Which you're th- saying to me, that seems a little drastic, but no, you actually can for patients that have like bad kidneys or bad diabetes. We, ibuprofen and naproxen, our friends that are relatively safe become very, very dangerous. And so we actually look at it and say, actually, it's probably better to be, if you need a little bit of pain relief to, to do your, to go about your day. Maybe a small dose opiate's appropriate. So we're definitely evolving on this, but we don't want to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. These medicines can be useful. Um, Also, in primary care, we catch everything. And so if you talk to a specialist what their views are on this, that's great. But when you talk to someone who's a primary care provider who... Is the first and last call for everything. We end up getting kind of pulled into this a little bit more because we ultimately are the ones accountable to the patient. A specialist is not mm-hmm. as accountable to a patient as the primary care provider when it comes to topics like these. Um, and so that, that again, that's a whole other conversation. But what we're getting back to is you know we think about you know the opiate crisis. There's multiple things that are feeding into it. With Corrections Health, you're typically seeing the opiate crisis from the medicine that maybe grandma gets for her knee pain gets maybe maybe she sells it maybe her nieces and nephews are the ones giving it to her maybe they give her one or two a day but in reality she's supposed to be getting potentially up to four a day i think it trickles out into the community um or obviously things like heroin illicit fentanyl those are other you know those are other so other ways to get for stuff to get on the streets but with you know your population it's a little different probably than some of the population i see in primary care um because a lot of uh, you know if, if you're justice involved and you have an opiate use disorder you're probably going to be younger um you probably are not going to be pre- receiving medications through a through a, a licensed physician or nurse practitioner um and so you're you, you know your source is different your 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 reasons for using might be different um it doesn't mean by any means though that someone who had an appendix taken out takes Vicodin and ends up on heroin. That's a that can absolutely happen. It does happen. It will continue to happen. Um, but I'm talking about like and and you could then lead to behavior that and makes you involved with the justice system. But um, so there are you know
0: different sort of sources for how different the pathways exactly exactly yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, I I can appreciate uh, it was a good question, Marcus. But I can appreciate um, the evolution uh, of of um, of a field and perspectives and certainly uh from the the correction side of things uh we've evolved quite a bit as well and to recognize um when when a practice is potentially harmful that that we've got to look at, at how we can evolve and improve uh what's that quote uh do your best until you know better and when you know better do better um and and so i think that is is very much alive here Um, we have done a bit of jumping around because one of these days we'll, we'll figure out your entire resume. Uh, we're almost done actually. You last left us in in Kentucky. Uh,
1: we were last left in Baltimore actually. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah.
0: John Hopkins. Yeah. yeah, No,
1: Baltimore. So yeah, no, actually I'll just finish up really quickly. After yeah. that, um, I was looking to take a job with the state of Maryland. Um, a couple of things fell through and I was looking nationally at different, um, different opportunities and the Clackamas County job popped up and I had some friends in Portland, some family in Seattle and was like, okay, well, you know, it's we're taking a look at and just fell in love with the, the program and the, our, our our system here in Clackamas County. So as the medical director, I am the chief medical officer for our primary care uh, dental and behavioral health clinics. So that's different than Dr. Sarah Present, who's our public health officer. So her job is COVID, tuberculosis, mm-hmm. a lot of those more larger macro things. I'm actually more on the, uh, the, the really direct service um, that being said, though, I do a ton of work with public health, and do it, we do work with community corrections. We integrate with corrections as well. Um, and so we do have a larger scope than just primary care, um, but th- those roles can be a little uh, unique. But like I said, I've been here for eight years. Um, it's been a great opportunity. We've really been able to kind of shift the health centers and how, when I started, we weren't really doing it MAT in primary care, or we weren't really working on addictions in primary care. It was very siloed, and we've worked to really aggressively break down those silos, reduce barriers to care and have become very, very integrated into a variety of addictions providers and hospitals, um, other community partners to be um, an agent of change um, and to support patients when they need it um, within the guidelines and rules in a safe way. But we've invested heavily in meeting the needs of our population. And Can a lot you, of our population ends up being just as involved. And so yeah. optimizing that 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 care continuum is important.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that integration, um, uh, specifically with maybe our jail, uh, with uh, our residential program? Um, yeah, just kind of about the work that's been done. Uh, it's been, been done for the last several years mm-hmm. and kind of the evolution of that. Definitely. Thank you for asking. No, we're really, I mean, for me, this is one of the things I
1: think that when you look at the impact to draw back on... Again, impacting children and families, and and impacting a healthy population, um, a safer population. I think that that is some some of this work we do with integration, integrating with corrections, is probably some of the most important work we do in the health centers. That is. Longitudinal, that is that is an investment in the future and also a smart use of of, of our dollars, um, and so it's a nice opportunity for us to truly serve the community. We, we love taking care of our patients with diabetes and hypertension, you know, and and, and you know, well child and women's health. I mean, that stuff's so important. But when we think about the impact on society overall, the Big the macro. Some of this work with corrections is for us some of the most important things we do. So we will work with Drug Court. We will work with CSAP, which is one of our residential um, uh, recovery programs, and we provide uh, primary care. We provide dental and any of behavioral health services the clients require. That includes um, addiction services, and but that's what's seen through a primary care lens. So. If a client becomes justice-involved, they're discharged maybe to either a drug court or to CSAP, um, our residential program. Um, the health centers will be involved. We have a case manager who's a LCSW and a CADC. And she, or one of them, will work with corrections and work with case managers and also work with the clients directly to get them connected to primary care. And if they require or um, request a buprenorphine, or Suboxone, um, we we can provide that for them. There's another medicine, Marcus, you asked about the different medicines for MAT. One of the other ones is Vivitrol, Mm -hmm. um, and that's an opiate blocker. It's a monthly injection. We offer that as well. And we're also uh, starting very soon um, the injectable Suboxone as well, or inject long-acting buprenorphine that lasts a month. And so uh, we provide those medications. We also provide any sort of case management that we can provide or complimentary services to clients that are already intensely justice-involved. Now, if they're less involved, if they've been released from from incarceration, maybe they have a PO, or maybe they don't, um, we still offer those services to them. And we may do more of the intense wraparound behavioral health. Mm-hmm. That being said, we do not require it. And if we think about we're going back to what we talked about before when we require you know we would require quote unquote patients to do intensive outpatient behavioral health when they're doing their MAT, uh, for us we've shifted our thinking on that. So it's medication first. So medication first means mm. that you adjust the dopamine levels, you fix those first because when a client comes to us and we say hey, we want you to go into a we want you to participate in a group and talk about your most deepest darkest issues and you know work through things that you've know, you've struggled with your whole life. Shockingly, not everyone's totally willing to do that. Mm. And so what we say to them is say hey, that's on offer. But also what's on offer is someone who's just going to be a point of contact with you. We're going to check in with you. We're going to see how you're doing. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make sure that you know these services are available, but they're available in a way that works for you. But first and foremost, we're going to provide you with the medications you need. So we get them on the medications. Maybe maybe we help them sort out some things. All of a sudden, child care is less of an issue. Maybe they've got a little bit more structure. They've earned back some um, points with the family. They have a little more support. And they say, you know, I, yeah, I I have a little more time. I do have the, I'm a little more in a space where I'm ready to talk about some of this. Mm -hmm. So that's what we want people to do, but we never require it. We used to, um, and there used to be stigma that we had to, or not stigma, but a a false uh, knowledge that you have to do both. We are absolutely not doing that. And that is a community standard at this point. Medication first. Yeah, medication first.
0: Me. You know, it, it's interesting. As this, this was illustrated a bit for me the other day, I was talking to a program manager, and they were they were sharing an instance where they had a, a client, a resident of the program, who was still kind of struggling with the the physical withdrawal, some of the after effects, coming down, so to speak, and. Um, you know they they're trying to hydrate them and and, and trying to uh, make accommodations and make them as comfortable as you could be in that situation um and uh and, and there was a bit of a delay for whatever reason for getting the medication to them but within one day then you know the next day this manager comes in the office and they see this person doing homework yeah and 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 they're just they're 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 in it they they remain in the program they're able to to um, to receive some of those interventions and to work on those behavioral issues, um, but but I, I'm I'm hearing you on the medication first, uh, and and how um, adding more uh, kind of attaching more I don't want to say hurdles, but 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 more things or obligations or expectations to that can really um, hinder uh, people's engagement with any kind of medication program. So I, I can appreciate that approach here. Um, you 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 mentioned Vivitrol at the end here. It's kind of uh, closing up our our, our uh, uh, glossary, um, and and there's also a term that sometimes gets attached to some of these different f- uh, forms of MAT uh, called uh, and forgive me if I'm butchering this here, but an antagonist mm-hmm. or an agonist and or a partial agonist. And so, can you can you kind of um, put the medications, the various medications, in those buckets as well?
1: Absolutely, I would be happy to. Thank you. That's a great question. So, a full agonist. Actually, when we think about a full agonist, things heroin, morphine, methadone; those are full agonists where they have a full activity on the opiate receptor, and they have the effects, um, the, the the effects that you think of: um, constipation, pain relief, euphoria, um, respiratory suppression. So, those are the full agonists. So, you full you fully. Um, so you fully agonize or you fully activate. Um, methadone has does not have the euphoria though, and so I want to say that uh, I guess one could argue that methadone isn't quite your classic opiate, and that's why again we use methadone early on because and it's also not a very good pain reliever, although it can to some degree. It has some of the it has some of the la, has some of the less um, problematic side effects, and uh, it prevents people from going through withdrawal and keeps that chemical balance, the the dopamine balance. So those are your full agonists. Now you have your partial agonists. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So it latches onto the receptor and it does activate it to some degree. But like we mentioned before, it's got that safety scissor effect. It's got those sealing effects to it. It doesn't have the euphoria that you get. So it's it's definitely in between um, the agonists and the antagonists. Now there's a lot more we could talk about with buprenorphine that's beyond the scope here as to how it behaves on the receptor relative to other opiates. I'll say this, Um it has a, the opiate receptor and buprenorphine are really good friends. They're like the best of friends. So if the basically, if you're on buprenorphine and you take another opiate, it's the other opiate would not have the same effect that normally you would think it would have. The two scenarios would be, you've got someone on oxycodone and someone on buprenorphine. They then both take a Vicodin. You got your oxycodone person taking a Vicodin, your buprenorphine person taking a Vicodin. Your oxycodone person, will have more of an, will feel of the effects of the Vicodin a lot more than your buprenorphine person, because buprenorphine and the opiate receptor are super good friends and the they, affinity is very, very high. And so it's hard to quote unquote, displace buprenorphine, which is another reason why it's such a good medicine. Now the, now that actually gets at the antagonist aspect. So we've talked about full agonist. We're going to the left here on the spectrum, antagonist, so the blocker blockade. There's two ways to get that blockade into you, orally or injection long-acting. An oral blockade, so that's naltrexone or naloxone, um, that medicine is available in a pill form, but it doesn't last 24-7. You're going to need to take it, you know, consistently, and also if you want to use and you wake up one morning, and you're supposed to take your opiate blocker pill, and you are with a friend who you've used with before, and you know they've got some, and you've had some a stressful day, your kid's acting up, or what, or whatever, whatever happens, all of a sudden you have the ability to stop your blockade and go back to your previous use. So that's the problem with oral naltrexone. The benefit is it's stupidly cheap; um, it's extremely affordable. So from a managed care perspective, historically they've wanted a, a client to quote-unquote fail oral uh, naltrexone or naloxone before they try the long-acting. Long-acting is Vivitrol. It's much more expensive, but it's a, it's a four-week window where you're effectively blockaded. And what that means is if you're, you got, if you're with a friend who used, you can inject if you want, you can take a pill if you want, and you're not going to really feel the effects. And so mm-hmm. that's the benefit of the blockade. The problem with the Vivitrol and naltrexone is it works for the right population. But as we think back to what we talked about before, the dopamine imbalance, it doesn't fix that. Mm. So you, so it works for a certain segment of the population. A lot of, and we're studying this actually, we're part of a clinical trial, but studying to figure out who is the ideal candidate for mm. long-acting naltrexone versus long-acting buprenorphine. And so we're involved in a clinical trial with NYU and OHSU here at the health centers and corrections to help determine what that is. As we talked mm-hmm. about, a practice is evolving. We don't know. We do know that women tend to be a little bit more, they tend to have a little better success with Vivitrol. Um, at at uh, Coffee Creek, there has been some interesting data. I don't think it's been published, but it looks, it looks to be where um, w- women have a little bit, they, they respond a little better. And what we mean by respond, it's how long you're engaged in treatment, and um, any uh, episodes of you encountering corrections again
0: or interval use, and so that's how we—that's how what we're looking at for success. Mm-hmm. And and doctor, you mentioned Coffee Creek, uh, which is a correctional facility and where women are housed. Um, so Vivitrol, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, does that also have a, a, an effect on alcohol That's as a, well? Absolutely. It's actually gold standard for alcohol use disorder. And the
1: nice thing about Vivitrol with alcohol is it just lessens the effect of drinking. So you can drink on. It's, when we think about alcohol abuse and alcohol use disorder, there's several medicines, a campersate or campryl, um, nalt- oral, our friend oral naltrexone, um, disulfram or anabuse, and then extended release naltrexone or Vivitrol. And so the medicines that are the most we, we, we've determined that are probably that are in favor at this point, the maximally in favor, are Naltrexone and Acamprosate or Campral. Disulfram is sort of falling out of favor, um, as we remember, disulfram or um,
0: Uh, or an abuse that's that's the one where you take it and you throw up Uh, Um, yeah i i remember that and i could see why someone would not want to do that number one number two it's not (laughs) as effective as we thought
1: so but we know with naltrexone um oral or injectable like we found it's uh, the data is pretty compelling as to how it helps people reduce their use and um uh, and we actually don't have the barriers to getting patients and clients on Vivitrol like we sometimes will for opiate use disorder. It's actually very, the insurance companies are very much in favor of pushing, not pushing, that sounds like a bad term, promoting the importance yeah. of potentially that intervention. Um, it's, really, it's really hard to get patients with alcohol use disorder to engage and want to cut down their drinking. It, we find it a
0: lot harder to start that than for someone for opiate use disorder that's interesting um, you know so when I think of this this description of an antagonist I, I I you know that was one of the things that I could get behind really early on and I'll share a little bit about my kind of my evolution on this um, because the idea of okay they take this shot or they take and and then they won't use right that's it that blocks it okay great I can get behind that uh, you know because I, I I recall from where I sit, you know, I was kind of opposed to MAT in the beginning, right? It it kind of seemed like, um, and, and I even as you've described uh, the lack of kind of a euphoric feeling that, that 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 comes as a result of these of these medicines, but it still felt like um, we were just replacing one addiction for another. We were just giving them an excuse, another drug. And so we still ha- we still had this kind of gold standard. I'm saying we, it really, this is me, right? I'm just only going to speak from my experience. But I had this kind of gold standard of sobriety, what it meant to be clean and sober. And I, I will say, I, I think that was shared, I think, in most recovery communities and providers and, and other folks. And other folks I've talked in the field have, have kind of shared their experiences. It's been fairly similar. And I remember that it wasn't too long ago, we're talking about a few years ago, where it was still... Uh, a requirement for a probation officer. So if someone was just as involved, they needed a probation officer to approve uh, uh, for them to get med- to, to get this medicine, which is looking back pretty kind of nuts. I'll just say, <laughs> you yeah, know, wild. Um, it's y- still happening guys. I yeah, still see it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, you know, and and I, I from from my recollection, and I I never prevented anyone from gaining access to that. It was it was honestly rare that that people had even presented it to me. I'm, I'm sure there were many that just didn't run by me. But um, from my during my time as a probation officer, but um, I I I went from kind of opposing it to having kind of like maybe tacitly approving it, saying okay, okay, well I'm not going to interfere with this, to Coming around to understanding, seeing some of the benefits in, in person and, and saying, okay, you know what, I think this is a good idea to, to, to where we are today, sitting across from you and being evangelistic about this and really trying to get some of these messages out um, because I think this can actually save lives. Um, I, yeah, I really appreciate you
1: bringing this up and being so forthright and honest because I I have had a similar journey. But I'll say this: for when I, if, if anyone's hearing this that still has and that's involved in some sort of these decisions or policy, I will ask anybody involved to look at to answer these couple questions. Why are you opposed to this? Mm. Are you opposed to this because you're worried there's going to be diversion? You're worried they're going to sell their medication. That's an appropriate fear but it's also one that we have the ability I mean I can put refills on buprenorphine we can give someone a week supply at a time and you know like and, and and they can refill it every week we have daily dispensing there i mean that's why methadone clinics you know it's one of the reasons why we are they're effective they're still effective to this day because but if you think about it why is someone diverting so i'll say this so oh well we've really gutted our safety net system here in 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 this country and so if someone has no income and you're giving them a medication so if they can barely hold on, but they can do it with eight milligrams of buprenorphine, and but they're getting twenty-four milligrams of buprenorphine, and they can sell two of those three tablets because they got to pay rent, they've got a car, they've got kids, they don't want to lose whatever. Are you kidding me? I would do that. So, uh, for, for for me, it's if I mean I. I cannot understand—when we think about diversion for—now, of course, if you're using it to buy methamphetamine, it's a different story, and I know that we're letting that situation, that scenario, drive our entire policy discussion. No, those situations are real, but I don't—I think we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater there because, well, that is a very, very valid point— Let's think about the full spectrum here and what the problems we're creating for other clients. So the first thing is diversion. The second thing is harmful use. We've talked a little bit about that with the methamphetamine. But yeah, if someone's taken Ativan or or illicit Xanax and they're on... You know, and and they're using you know, and and they're using opiates. Yeah, that's a dangerous use habit. Now, granted, buprenorphine in Xanax is much safer. We're not going to go there, but it's safer. I can talk about that later. But again, that's another thing where we say, okay, maybe we put a bit of a flag here and put some more rules in place for this client because we are concerned that there may be something dangerous to their health. But if we're not worried about diversion
0: or harmful use, then it's stigma, and that's it. It's—and it's, you're touching on this, and I know I've heard you say this before, but this, this idea of viewing abuse or, or use of, of medicine in this way as a moral failure, and that's a, that's a powerful thing, and you know, that can cut through some of the, the logic, I'll just say, or some of the, the data uh, and some of the points that you've made, and that, that's, that's a really strong feeling.
1: Well, we've um, been taught it's a moral failure, right? And so we've we've passively sort of been in, we've we've absorbed that um, through religion, culture, dare. I mean, Christ, the only thing dares good right now is to have funny t-shirts to wear when you're out you know, with your friends. Um, <laughs> you know, we really thought that was what happened, and now that we know that that's not the case. It 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 demands us to reconsider that the like moral failure because we I mean there's a reason why I started this when we talked this started this conversation to talk about the limbic brain trauma, ACEs, prefrontal cortex, dopamine imbalance because I'm sorry I didn't see anything I didn't said nothing about moral failure. I mean, you know, is there a, is there a sociopathic element to some of our clients who struggle with addictions? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We have we have we have jails in this country. Why? Because a certain percent of our population is sociopathic. It's, it is again, it's something you're born with. But we know that as a society, that's very dangerous. And so we do we do need rules. We do need reasons to incarcerate people. Mm-hmm. But when we have, but when we're tainted and we're tinted or whatever with this this. This judgmental aspect, because as human beings, it's it's we like to put things in in categories, black and white. You know, it's why, you know, e- evil is easy to hate because it's so clear and obvious. But the reality is, everything's a lot more gray than we want we want to we want to give it credit for. And then primary care, it's actually why it's such a challenging field for us, because rarely does someone present with the classic presentations of something. Um, it's typically gray, and to live in the world where it's gray. Means you have to acknowledge that there's an argument on both sides that's compelling. That the truth may be relative, and that's very hard to do.
0: Andrew, I think our fields are a lot more alike than, than maybe I, yeah. I I thought going into this. Um, I
2: think this is a a good place to to yeah. kind of switch gears here for a minute, um, because I would be remiss if we went through this entire podcast without uh, without addressing COVID with a medical doctor now. I know you're not uh, in the public health sector uh, of your field, but um, the question I have is kind of marries those those two um, two ideas. So, uh, I've heard you say previously in a, in another podcast that that movement is medicine, and I think you were referring to pain in that in that mm-hmm. uh, sense. Um, and so, in this age of COVID, when people are more sedentary than they've been. You know, in in recent years, uh, is there any proactive work being done in the medical community to prevent an increase in any future like overprescription of opioids um, or or pain medications?
1: Oh, Marcus, that's a great question. I mean, we're seeing it now. We're seeing a spike in um, opiate overdose um, and and um, amphetamines as well. Um, the OHA data, I haven't seen it for September, but we did see a spike. Um, you know, we are very very concerned about this. Um, mm. What we want, so what we've done at the health Centers is, for example, if you're quarantined and you've become dependent on a medication and you need MAT services, um, the, the feds have allowed us to do this. Um, we've, depending on the situation, we may waive the first meeting being face to face. You call us on the phone, we're able to verify your records. Um, We're able to, you know, get the information we need. We're able to provide you a small amount of medication before you can get in to be seen in person um, to, to keep you safe, to keep our COVID protocols in place but um, it allows us to provide you access to, to essential treatment. So we've definitely tried to reduce barriers as much as we can, um, and the feds have allowed us to, thankfully. So that's one thing we've done. We've de- we're definitely more concerned about it. Um, one thing we are worried about is patients de- requiring or requesting an increase of, of opiates or anxiety medicine. We have seen that to some degree. Um, I mean, for me, Marcus, the movement is medicine is one thing, but one thing I think COVID's taught us is, social interaction is 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 medicinal as well mm-hmm. and you know for our pa- for our patients who have sort of retreated it's been interesting that being said i have had an equal number of patients increase their alcohol use and a, a, almost an equal number of patients saying to me hey doc you know i've been trying to quit smoking and drinking for forever. This has given me an opportunity. I've got nothing else to do. You know, I've been, you know, I'm working on it. And so in some ways it's actually an
0: opportunity for us to focus on both. It's rare, but I've actually finding it more than I thought. Now that is interesting. Guys, I think we're gonna have to to cut it here. Um, There's so much more we could talk about. maybe we'll have to do a part 2 if, if we can make that happen i would love for that to happen marcus um i know you like to close us out here with a, a bit of a summary can you go ahead and uh take yeah, us down here
2: not not so much a summary but uh you know i pulled a, a few things um from our conversation now. uh this was a very uh, in my in my opinion, just me not having any medical training, uh, a lot of big words, a lot of uh, high level uh, <laughs> stuff going on here. Um, but uh, some some action items I did pull out from our conversation. Um, the first is uh, is recognizing what level you're addressing somebody at. um if if somebody uh, may be in their their limbic brain, um, really thinking about that next, you know, two minutes to two hours from now, um and you're thinking about, uh, you know, next week or down the road or, or, you know, five-year goals, uh, really taking a look at, at how you're addressing somebody and what their needs are in that moment. Um, as a corrections officer or or a, or a probation officer. Um, the other thing is, uh, you, said this very early on Dr. Suchaki um, uh, to talk, to learn different views. Um, we were talking about ignorance and ignorance kind of having this, this negative connotation, but, uh, viewing it, not necessarily as a negative thing, but just as a lack of information. And so when you're talking to somebody, talk to them, trying to learn those different views. Um, and the very last thing in, in terms of, of what we've been talking about today in, in, in MAT is if you still, if you're a, a corrections professional and you're still finding yourself opposed to this idea or, or 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 reserved on this idea of MAT, think about why it is that you're opposed to it. You know, go back and listen to some of these things that that uh, Andrew said and, and, and think why you're opposed to it. And think in 2020, with all the research and the data and the information that's out there now, do your is your opposition's opposition still valid and you really challenge yourself on that
0: yeah. i like that that's that's really well done uh Marcus thank you for uh, putting that all together and um doctor do you have anything else to kind of close this out no
1: Marcus I think you i think you absolutely nailed it and for me it's when you're thinking in that limbic phrase it's reassuring patients for example if i talk to a patient about we're gonna have a difficult conversation about maybe their opiate use. The first thing I tell them in the visit is, I'm gonna refill your opiate pain medication today as it was last month. Hmm. And then a patient could then hear you. And so we think about talking to someone hmm. who might be in that limbic brain, it's what do they need to hear now so you can gauge with them later. So Marcus, That's I awesome. wanted to build on that. I love that you brought that up. Um, but no, it's been a great conversation, guys.
0: Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. If you liked this episode of what we're doing here, do us a favor and tell a friend. It definitely helps to subscribe to the show so you don't miss new episodes and positive reviews makes us more visible to others. But there's nothing more powerful than word of mouth. So please, help others find us. Turn someone you know onto Correction's community and we'll do our part not to disappoint. As always, thanks for listening.